Marcus, it seems like we just got back and unpacked from our last trip to Montserrat in the Caribbean, but it's time to go back because we have with us today a guest who knows all about Air Montserrat, that studio which caught our attention in the Under the Volcano movie. Remember that? Remember how I drove you crazy with that? I had so much fun being honey badgered by you over that one because it really actually made me become very obsessed with the movie in a way because I think I watched it two or three times after you asked me to. And along comes this book from a man who joins us today. Apparently he shares our obsession to a larger degree with the studio that George Martin created there in the Caribbean, Air Montserrat. Brian Sellerson, our guest on The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Thanks for joining us, man. Great to be here, guys. It's funny how people become obsessed or fascinated with something, and I think we all found this fascination with this one little tropical paradise and the magic that was created there. And from what I've read, you started doing the book about the same time the documentary was being worked on as well. But you took a completely different angle, which I found to appreciate much more because you talked about the things that they didn't go into as much detail in the movie about. And I'm talking about the island and the culture and the history and the people. And And the untold part of the documentary is how the locals were fully involved in uh, that part of it, but also we found out some things in the book about how the skills of some of the workmen kind of hindered both the initial construction of the studio, which became a world-class studio, but also some of the power issues and problems that came up along the way. That's part of the story, right? Right, absolutely. You know, when I started the project, I think that initially that I had the same type of angle as the documentary which was really artist centered um i mean everybody's gonna have you know see the bright lights and the stars and think you know uh sting and and paul mccartney and once i started getting into it i mean the first initial contacts that i had were with people who worked there it came apparent really quickly that you know the island was uh the central character in the book uh it's what drove george martin to take this harebrained idea and and put this modern you know recording studio on this tiny little island and you know in the book you really understand how difficult it was of a project to pull off uh and well you really go into the detail on it brian and i mean to the point where i'm sitting there at points just a few chapters in with my pulling my jaw off the floor, I couldn't believe some of the things that I suspected that were true and all the things that we found out that we didn't even know about. Right, Marcus? I loved how you spoke to the people creating the board. And is it the Neve board? Yeah. Okay. And the whole creation of the Neve board and how uh, it needed to be modified. It's a special board, and the fact that you talked about and went into the detail about the construction of all of that and the equipment really made you feel like you were in that studio was it hard to find out all of the equipment and and get those stories out of the people getting the people to agree to this story was a titanic task in itself what i found out was this story is a very personal story to a lot of the people that i interviewed so they were very reluctant just to give these stories to just anyone it took a lot of uh, interpersonal uh, you know massaging between personalities and uh, you know once you open the door with one person and you gain their trust and you really explain what what the project's about and, and my angle of how i was going to approach it then they could bring other people into the fold and it took a lot of work to get get to where i i got to the point where people would open up i mean um, especially when it had to do with the stars, you know, these people all worked in this industry where there's a lot of privacy issues. You couldn't get a lot of artist stories from a lot of the different uh, people that worked in the studio because they're trained from day one of you don't air the dirty laundry that happens in a studio. Portraits, boys in the band ordered portraits. Visitors scored on the home rank. Everything's 
Oh yeah, there's, there, that would be like like ten books worth of stuff. Not there, just in general, there'd be ten books out there of just that stuff. If you if you were going to go there, right? Right. You know what? I, what I like to you brought out certain characters in that crew, uh, people like Yvonne Kelly as an example. Uh, that just you know, uh, Steve Jackson too. Uh, people that weren't so much a part of the documentary thing, and it it, it showed me another facet of the whole picture that we were getting from the documentary and the other reading that we've done i you know i really focused on the personalities and i really tried to bring out the stories that were were unique to montserrat because it really was such a unique environment both from a technical aspect from a cultural aspect you know i got told many stories that could have happened at any studio in the world air london or you know the record plant or wherever and i left those out of the book because i really if i, I would have had you know a multi-volume if I were to put every story in there. So I had to pick and choose and really what stories are in the book, you know, reflect the difficulties or how the environment or the culture affected the experience, both from the staff's, you know, perspective and from the artist's perspective. On page 88, you told a story about the thundering rain coming down which was common and it was flooding the hill and then they helped a local musician named Errol Ide to protect his his truck and it seems like all of these almost catastrophic things that happened were part of the magic of the studio would you agree that these types of stories enhanced the specialness of uh, Air Montserrat Oh, absolutely. Every, like I said, everybody I spoke to, this was such a, a special time and a special place in their lives. Um, they all look at it with, with such reverence. I mean, culturally, Montserrat is unlike almost anywhere in the world. I mean, I went there myself uh, when I first started this project. I, I have a friend who works for uh, National Geographic as a travel writer. And when I mentioned this project to him, he said to me, you have to go there like right away. So I went there and spent two weeks on the island. The culture that was in Montserrat at the time of the studio persists to this today. Even after all of the hardship between the hurricane and, and the volcano, the people that still live there still are the most warm people. They're the most kind people, welcoming people, uh, no ego. An example I can give you is I, I was interviewing someone uh, at a local bar and I had a high-end camera that I brought to capture some, you know, beautiful photos of the island. And I accidentally left it on the counter. And as I'm leaving the bar, one of the locals says, oh, sir, you left your camera. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And he's like, you know what would happen if you would have left your camera there? I said, what? He's like, somebody would have picked it up, taken it up to the local radio station, and they would have made an announcement, and somebody would have found you and get you <laughs> back. That's what it's like there. Yeah. That feels like the spirit of Montserrat. During its prime, during the time of uh, the Air Studio, and since, even as it lives on after, I guess the whole island is living before and after uh, the volcanic eruption that Jimmy Buffett wrote about. No time to count what I'm worth. Because I just left the planet Earth. I know we're talking about a lot of the particulars, you know, beyond the music and all here on the Imbalance History Podcast. We're talking with Brian Salerson and his book, uh, Island Music, The History of Air Montserrat, is a great read. If you want to know more than just, then these guys showed up and then these guys showed up, that's in there too. But if you want to know more than just that, you've got to get his book. And we were talking about this before we started the podcast, Brian. You did this book through Amazon Publishing, which means... All three versions of your book are available on Amazon. And also right. people should check out, I think, your website, salerson.com. That's salerson with two L's, S-A-L-L-E-R-S-O-N.com. And check out Apple Books, too, another place where you can get this really cool book about a place that was historic for a time, like Camelot, right? A little bit like rock and roll Camelot. Very much so. I want to talk a little bit more about your time on the island because this is an island I have to absolutely visit before. I don't know if you listened to our I episode. Died. We we we've we lost for a trip there. I think our our wives are both actually kind of like you know coming around to the fact that this might actually happen at some point. 
Uh-huh. So Gotta know. I gotta know. I'm gonna yeah. ask the question right up front. Did you get to the studio complex during your adventure? Yes, I did. <laughs> Hope lives, Marcus. Hope lives. Now, I'll say this. I was writing a book about the studio. So the Martin's local person who manages the studio helped me gain. I didn't gain permission <laughs> to step into the property. You have to understand, the studio is derelict. I mean, sure. it is a dangerous, dangerous area. and I There's stuff that's been there just falling apart for so long the now, ceiling right? ceiling is collapsed on the villa. The ceiling is, when I was there, was collapsing <sighs> over the patio. The door to the studio is gone. The pool is septic, and there's nails and rust and wasps, and it is heartbreaking. Let's, I'll say that. It's heartbreaking to actually be there and see it in person. I have to tell you that a lot of the people that are involved in the studio are devastated to see the studio in the condition that it is. They... <laughs> well, they remember the greatness, you know? Right. Uh, but remember in the documentary, though, Dame Judy Martin said, now it's time for it to go back to what it was, I suppose, or something like that. And it sounds like that's what's happening over the course of time. George said that almost uh, verbatim in an interview that I, I saw from, from in the early 2010s, where, you know, their philosophy was everything has its time and, you know, everything has a beginning and an end and, and returns to where it, where it came from. It's just... For a lot of people, it's really just heartbreaking. Uh, I don't know if you've got you guys saw the section about John Silcott, who was a a yes. Montserratian who you know he started as a barman at the studio and gained the opportunity to become a a technician, which was rare uh, for you know Montserratian culture. To that's one of the parts of the book I like because you showed that direct integration of somebody who was from the town and the area getting involved in something that was important inside the operation beyond like the, the entertainment facilities and all the, uh, you know, the, the chef. And we could talk about Tappy probably just for like an hour. The guy was such right. a huge character, but yeah, that was kind of a cool thing to have happen within this giant thing that was happening there over the years. And John considers that he, he, you know, went on to become a multimillionaire and uh, you know, a very respected technician in the Caribbean, owns his own radio stations. He went to the Martin family and tried to buy the property just because it has such a sentimental value for him and they would not sell it. There have been several uh, attempts over from, from both the Montserratian government, some people who wanted to set up a like a museum there. Because up until 2010 or so, the studio could have been saved. Uh, it was still intact enough that it needed minimal repairs to to come back to um, at least a functional, maybe not a recording studio, but at least, you know, some kind of heritage center or something like that for the island. But the Martin family has never wanted to sell, and it's just been disintegrating ever since. Wow. Were you able to talk to the radio DJ who was a prominent voice during that recording time at all? And yes, yes, I interviewed Rose Willock, yes. How was it, and did you get to spend a significant amount of time with her and really dig into what it was like on the island at that time? Yeah, I, I probably spent two hours uh, with her. We just sat outside a, a local restaurant and uh, had lunch, talked about um, the island. Rose really gives perspective on the studio. Her and there's a local historian, um, Howard Fargus, I interviewed him as well on the island. They're both, you know, probably in their probably 80s at this point. Uh, they really could give me a perspective of how the studio became what it was and how it was integrated into the island's culture. Uh, the sad thing about it, though, I have to say, is that a lot of young people don't really have any knowledge of the studio. The people of the island? Yes. Wow. Uh, the younger people, uh, those of... of you know, who were probably in their late teens at the time the studio was around, they they know it. There hasn't been a, a really strong effort by the government to really promote the studio as part of the history. Do you think the Martins view and the handling of things doesn't help in that regard? Because if there was some effort to be made, maybe they'd have to be, a part, they'd obviously have to be a part of it. So I don't know. I, I mean, George built the cultural center that's on the island uh, after they had that uh, that huge concert back in the 90s after the volcano went off. Mm -hmm. uh, the Martins continued to go to the island every uh, January for George's birthday. 
Um, in fact, when I was on the island, um, Judy Martin and her daughter were there to be there during their normal vacation um, or holiday, as they say. In I guess you didn't um, get a chance to get anywhere near them, huh? I purposely stayed away because I thought that it would be inappropriate as a you know journalist to approach her on her holiday, especially after the next one exception. One exception, though, Brian, is if you happen to be walking down the road in the opposite direction and Judy's walking the other way, you have all the right to just stop and chat with her. That's different, but that can happen there. This is the thing I, I, I like about the whole atmosphere and the Caribbean in general. Not all the islands are like this, but cool things can happen that can happen in, you know, everyday life uh, that was one of the the selling points for these artists is they would go down to montserrat and everything down there is soca music or you know caribbean you know pan music which is what they call steel drums people don't know what's going on i mean some of the some of the you know montserratian staff i interviewed you know like you see in the, the documentary uh lloyd francis his favorite band was was the rolling stones but for the most part most people had no idea what was happening in Western music um, mm-hmm. and pop music at the time. So Paul McCartney would go down and, you know, there's a story in there where, you know, <laughs> one shop owner wants to meet Paul McCartney and he's told, oh, you've already met him because he was in your shop yesterday. <laughs> no clue that Paul McCartney was even in there. You know, uh, and, and, and Linda could, could go shopping around and nobody would bother them. There's that moment in the book where you describe him walking in and say, hi, I'm Paul, introducing himself to people. And the guy's thinking like, yeah, I know you're Paul, you know, and I think that's part of him just being him. Think about Paul McCartney at the time. I mean, any of these artists, once you get to a certain popularity level and fame, you don't have a normal life anymore. Montserrat gave them that, that they could come down there, they could drive a car, and Paul McCartney would pick up locals and that still goes on today hitchhiking is a big part of Montserratian culture he's still you know, picking up locals on the side of the road well just back when he was, <laughs> I was when I was there on the island no I'm just um, saying Paul McCartney's still in Montserrat picking up locals it would be a funny image if you think about it our yeah. guest is Brian Salerson his book Island Music the History of Air Montserrat get it wherever you get books Apple Books uh, Amazon and also you know it sounds to me like you've learned enough I just want to throw this out there, Marcus. I didn't even talk to you about this before because we had a little connection problem. We work it out. We get in here and I just want to say, do you ever consider doing a podcast about this? I had thought about it. I mean, I have a hundred hours of recorded audio. I'm calling <laughs> think- a meeting as soon as we get off the off the air with this episode, guys. <laughs> I wish I would have asked permission to use the audio when I had done. I, I had no idea when I started this project that it would you know, blossom. Uh, All right. Just remember, I, you may not know this. I'm an advocate of the Abby Hoffman School, which is as it's always better to beg forgiveness. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just a thought, because the subject is that interesting. We, we're really glad to have you here. And even though, like we said, it's only a few months since we did an episode about the studio and everything that went on there, we had to talk to somebody who's been there, who went down there, who visited, as it turns out, the complex. And along the way, reading your book, I learned a few things. A lot of tidbits pop up, right? Things you didn't know before, like Factoid. The Climax Blues Band was not only the guinea pig for Montserrat, but also the first band to record at Ayers Oxford Circus Studio. I did not know that, sir. How was Climax Blues Band chosen as the guinea pig for these new studios? Mainly because they were the guinea pigs at Oxford Circus. They knew what it was like to break in a new studio, to run through all of the... Uh, you know, problems that you're going to have initially. And they had the temperament, uh, you know, they, they were English gentlemen. And, you know, so there wasn't any kind of, you know, anger issues when, you know, when you plug an amp in and the socket would not work or something like that. So they, they knew what they were doing. They had this history with air. So when they were looking to do, you know, a new, new record and they came to air, they're like, hey, you guys are the people we want to bring to the island. We'll charge you a cheaper rate come on down they ended up spending a lot more time there than they initially expected to that telling of that story and how they went through all of that is one of the best things about your book the way you tell stories like that oh thank you 
You know, we're talking about Climax Blues Band and what your book really exposed, to, for me anyway, I don't know if you felt this way, Marcus, but the facilities were not finished, were 100% ready in any regard when they started the Shakedown Cruise in Montserrat. I mean, the way that things were still getting finished up and parts of the complex still being built, the pool wasn't built yet, it wasn't finished yet, things like that. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine, you know, flying in and then you getting there and there's nothing but rebar and holes in the ground and you know the studio was technically operational but there were still a lot of bugs to work out um and that's why they were there in in a small way and and they even had a time where they got sent to the beach because they had to work out something for a few days right exactly exactly (laughs) guys i know you're here to record but could you go to the beach for a few days and we'll let you know when we're ready for you nobody was (laughs) complaining i don't know George Martin and everybody at the studios had to do a lot of work in negotiating with the power companies and the government officials. Were you able to find out any of the government side of all of that during your research? One of the things I tracked down was an actual document from the government outlining exactly uh, what kind of tax breaks Uh, George Martin was going to get uh, included a 15 year tax holiday where they didn't have to pay any any taxes on any of the uh, equipment that was coming in. I think Malcolm Atkins said something along the lines that it would would cost like 40 to 50 percent more for the the cost of studio would cost that much more if they wouldn't have got the, you know, import duties waived. You know, the document that I found actually was like outlining exactly like, you know, three mattresses, you know, the oven, like like every like line item of exactly what they were getting mm-hmm. importing to to build this thing it was and they had to import just about everything right i mean other than basic building materials yes. like wood planks or concrete blocks anything that was mm-hmm. technical uh, had to come in anything that was appliances uh the freezer or you know linens and i mean that's one of the the recurring themes you'll see throughout the period of the studio is sourcing items was always a difficult thing because you know there'll be a negotiation of like okay well what foods do they like or you know what type of cigarettes do they have or you know what kind of wine do they want well there's nothing there at Montserrat and you would have to like you know sometimes they'd have to oh you know this artist wants this type of wine okay well we have to go to fly to Guadalupe to go pick it up or you know there might be several weeks where no toilet paper comes in and what do you do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, no. you ready? Nope. These are things that are unique to running a studio on what is basically I, a I remote island. It's a volcano. It's, ready to go. <laughs> right. Everybody lives in tin shacks and agriculture was a big part of it. There's no tourism. It was a very unique business venture uh, to bring something like that to to that environment. Were those documents public knowledge, like the tax break documents, or did you have to sort of ask people and they were like, hey, sure, it's been it forever, this all happened, we can show you now? I tracked it down at at, uh, a university's in, I believe, Ohio, their archive of, I think it was Caribbean legal documentation, and I was able to work. There is such a place? Holy cow. (laughs) Holy cow. Hey, let's get back to the studio visit that you had at George Martin's vision in paradise. What was the favorite thing that you discovered when you visited Air Montserrat studio, when you were there in the studio area? What was the thing that you really went, wow? I, I guess it would be the environment around it. You're up on this hill. You can't quite the see ridge. This. That's what they refer to it in the book. You, you call it right. the ridge. The ridge was that property was a family, you know, house where you know the Sturge family raised their kids there uh, before George bought it in the the mid seventies. You know, they built that house because it had such a beautiful view. It was a, such a beautiful property, and when you actually get up there, uh, you get this this sense of you know you got the the volcano behind you. And that, you know, and then you turn the opposite direction and you can look down to see the Bellum Valley, which is where the golf course mm-hmm. used to be with the Caribbean Sea behind it. It's uh, it's quite a beautiful place. Uh, I'll bet. It's, it's, it's part of what makes us want to go there. Right, Marcus? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> be OK, we got to climb all the way up through the muck and everything from the volcano. But when we get up there, boy, the view is going to be great, too. 
you know, the, the, the beautiful lawn that you see in a lot of those pictures is nothing but jungle now. I brought a drone there to try to take some photos and between the wind blowing so hard because it blows 15 miles an hour constantly on the island, I was afraid to fly the drone because if it fell anywhere, it would be lost in a jungle. It's that bad there. Oh, wow. And did you have to fill out paperwork and all of that to fly, to possibly shoot with the drone over the island? No, they basically only restrict that over the where the airport is, which is Naturally. another another thing that's crazy about that island is the flying into that island. Every, you know, even back then and today, those they're they're little five seat, seven seat planes, and the runways are so narrow and so small that when you come in, you drop in. So quickly, it's a scary flight. Oh, Marcus, I did it in Santorini. It's no big deal. I'm not doing it. I am absolutely under no circumstances doing that. I'll take the slow boat from from Guadalupe or something like that. If we go, we'll take the slow boat. Hey, one of the stories you told perfectly that kind of got glossed over, you know, documentaries do this, uh, is the story about Jimmy Buffett, how he showed up early and was kind of poking around and... I uh, heard about it, you know, before it was really up and running. It was there early on before eventually, you know, scheduling and recording his Volcano album there. As the son of a son of a sailor, I went out on the sea for adventure. Expanding the view of the captain and crew like a man just released from indenture. As a dreamer of dreams and a traveling man, I have chalked up many a mile. Read dozens of books about heroes and crooks, and I learned much. That's the kind of stuff you get in Brian's book, Island Music, the History of Air Montserrat. I suggest you check it out on Amazon or on Apple Books. And uh, these days, people need it a couple different ways. So you're giving it to them both on their Kindle or whatever their mobile device is, mm-hmm. and also uh, in their hand. I like going into a bookstore. I really believe that when you go into a bookstore and you're actually looking at the pages, it can help to make you to make your decision. So right. look for it wherever you buy books. And Marcus and I both have our favorite bookstores. I'm sure you do too, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Did you? Spend a lot of time talking to Yvonne, the manager of Air Studios. And what is she like as a person today? Um, I interviewed her in her living room. She's very protective of her time there. She was one of the most difficult persons to get to agree to an interview. But she's great. Uh, Everybody who worked with her had great things to say. It's such a special time for her. It's such a special part of her life. I mean, she, her father was from Montserrat. Mm-hmm. So it was a second home for her. So for her to have this uh, career of managing a studio, she always wanted to be involved with the music industry and took this huge chance to move to Montserrat from England in order to perhaps have the chance to work there. Yeah. That when she did get the chance to work there, it was like a dream tr- come true for her. You know, there's there's the the great story of her, you know, getting out there. Elton John's coming to the studio and there's a there's a leak in the sewer system and she's out there. That story's crazy. I know, uh, you know, with buckets trying to get the sewage sewage out before Elton John gets there. And then the whole crew jumps in and helps her do it. That's one of the the things that that you hear over and over Mm -hmm. that it was more like a family there. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Management versus, you know, everybody was more or less equal. Minetta told me, Minetta Francis, who was the the head of housekeeping, she's right. like, you know, we might have, uh, you know, a little squabble here or there, but we're family. And, mm-hmm. you know, 15 minutes later, we're, we're back yeah. to being good friends again. Did, they, did any of the staff mention who their favorite artists were during this time? Uh, Elton John was mentioned a lot. You know, things I didn't realize about him. Now, I mean, he, he's got a great autobiography. If you haven't read it, please read it. It's so riveting. It's terrific. One thing I learned about him is how generous of a person he was and how down to earth, you know, you see Elton, you know, in his costumes and in his, you know, flamboyant, terrific concerts and these types of things. But he would go down to the local, quote unquote, chicken shack and open the bar to everybody. He would give his glasses, sunglasses to somebody he liked who was dancing there. It's because they allowed him to finally let him be rich. 
you know, to just be yourself and right. you don't have to be the fancy superstar. And that's, I think that had that effect on a lot of people, but he really needed it, man. Did you have any stories like that that didn't make the book that were special moments that happened between the musicians and the uh, locals? I tried to include everything that I could. I mean, there are off the record things that, you know, people shared with me. Uh, because like I said, these are really personal stories. So some of them were, you know, between the artists and the, you know, the, people would tell me things so I would get more of a context, but I couldn't tell every single story. Um, but I tried to include everything that I thought really showed how the islands, the staff, the people who live there impacted the artists and vice versa. A word that we heard a lot in the documentary and we used a lot in our previous episode about life under the volcano, is serendipity. There's serendipity in the way that you find Miss Minetta and some of the other people who live on the island. Lots of serendipity during the music making there, including the moment where Sting's on holiday and Dire Straits is working on their album, Brothers in Arms. And Mark Knopfler kind of muses, oh man, I wish I had Sting here. And Neil stops, the producer stops and goes, wait a minute, he's on the island serendipity big buckets of serendipity and it worked out really well in that regard for you with the things you were able to do to tell us this amazing story and island music the history of air montserrat brian salerson is our guest uh brian i'm thirsty and one of our sponsors crooked eye makes some really great ale so we're going to order some up and come back for more of our discussion with you about your wonderful book here on the imbalance history of rock and roll it's fall, and I know, Marcus, that you've got a ton of anecdotal stories about your feet and riding and running and all that stuff that you do in the fall. And I know bold foot socks are part of your regiment, right? Absolutely. They wick moisture off your feet and keep them dry. I do wear the bold foot socks when I bike, and never, ever have I had swampy feet. And I've ridden on almost a 100-degree heat index day, and my feet right. weren't this swampy. This summer especially, so, right? Yeah. I really like what they do. And another bonus is they're American-made. Boldfoot Socks is a company that uh, Josh got into because he did a 100K thing. Where, who could, Man, who has time for that, man? He's amazing. So he goes and does this 100K in these Boldfoot Socks, and the socks perform so well, he believes, and he's right, that these socks are really going to revolutionize footwear for people who work out and ride, especially uh, someone like you who rides a lot on their on their bike. And let's not forget, Josh did that like hundred mile run in the Nevada desert. That what? is gnarly and tough. And he donates portions of his sales to military charities, which is awesome. So go check out their amazing variety of colors and styles. Great socks, and you can find them all at boldfoot.com. Thanks to them for their support of the podcast. As always, Boldfoot Socks, American grown, American sewn. So much has been happening this year and changing at Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor for a long time now, Marcus. Since 2014, they've been pouring the cure for what ails you, but then they added craft cocktails. Then they added ciders. And recently, they opened the Crooked Eye Kitchen and Salty Vets Barbecue being served at the premises. You used to have to bring something with you. Now just bring your appetite. The long-term business plan of Crooked Eye has been very smart. Whatever they were going to do before the pandemic had to change drastically, and they've made the adjustments. And as we've slowly opened up, they've slowly continued to add and add and create more. And it's much to the delight of the people going in there all the time, because like you've said, every night's a party, a different kind of party over at Crooked Eye. It's and a random party. what the music is, like the Blues Jam or the second Tuesday of the month with my vinyl night, which is anything you want it to be the crooked eye band and all the other performers who make it fun mafia all performing check it all out and the way to find out about who's playing when is on their facebook that's really the best way to keep up but the website too i guess so if you're looking for a place to go make a plan grab a friend meet at crooked eye in the heart of hatboro serving you since 2014 Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Ray Coob and Marcus Goldman with our guest, Brian Salerson, the author of Island Music, The History of Air Montserrat. One of the stories you tell really well also is the behind-the-scenes story of Steve Jackson and his key role. He's really the guy who is Mr. Can Do and beyond the initial startup gang is the one who really makes things go for quite a while for the studio. Yeah, Steve was there for... The, I would say the golden age of the studio, uh, that, that sweet spot between 1980 and probably the beginning of 83, where, you know, the studio was booked all the time. Steve really has the personality where he is a can-do kind of guy. If an artist wanted something done, it would be done. He was the one who would arrange for softball games with, you know, between the artists and, and people on the island. Whatever you want to do, We'll, we'll make it happen. You want to go, you know, he's the one who arranged to have Stevie Wonder go down and, and play at the Agouti uh, Lounge. Great story uh, in there, how he navigates the steps and they all go, <gasps> and, he, and he goes right over and he goes, ah, y'all thought I was blind huh? or something like that. I was like, wow, that's not in the doc. Crap, like that's not in the documentary, man. Steve is a raconteur too. Like I interviewed him. He lives down in the Caribbean. Um, and I do give him major credit for starting this book off on the right foot. He was the first interview that I had for the book. He hadn't done any interviews about working at the studio in 40 years. And he welcomed me into his home. And him and his wife, Jan, you know, regaled me for five, six hours with stories, you know, took me to lunch. They were just great people. And w when I got through that first interview, I just came out of that with such such vigor because i figured if, if this is the beginning point of the book everything else has got to be great you said in the book that it took him a while to come to peace to talking about his time there yet you got some pretty good stuff out of him do you did he get emotional when you were speaking to him at all and did he allude to why it was so hard without going into too much detail you know, everybody loves Steve and it just was not the best way I could describe it, it just wasn't meant to be uh, long term. You know, it was a good time in his life, as it was with many people. Um, and I think that he didn't want to leave. I think he was he, it could have been a, a long term thing for him. So, you know, there was some emotion for for that because it, it was something that was special to him. And that, uh, you know, it's so far in the past at this point. He's been to Montserrat since then. Especially, he went over there just to see the volcano once it started going off, just to see the impact it had on the locals. All right, Brian, let's talk about life on the rock, how it started, and how it has evolved. The rock being Montserrat. Right. And that's the way a lot of the, the, the air technicians refer to the Montserrat as the rock. I, I mean, if you want to go back, uh, Montserrat is this really 
I wouldn't say strange. I would say more interesting uh, cultural clash or, or conglomeration between Irish, African, and Caribbean cultures all on one island. Awesome. And that leads me to my next thing. Let's talk about the dual role of St. Patrick's Day's importance, Catholic, Irish, and the revolt of the slaves and all that, because that's related to what we started on. Right. I mean, it, most people think uh, St. Patrick's Day and they think, you know, green beer and, you know, partying. Well, there's definitely still green beer there and partying. But the basis for St. Patrick's Day in Montserrat is, you know, it was a slave's rebellion uh, back in the 1700s. Something like that. Mm -hmm. and, I think it was before uh, the American Revolution. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, the to this day, they celebrate that slave rebellion. And it just happened to be on St. Patrick's Day because their slave owners, who were Catholic, uh, were off celebrating St. Patrick's Day and the slaves revolted on that day. Let's talk about jump-ups. Did you experience any while you were there? I didn't. Uh, they're not as quite as common as they used to be just because there's very limited places to do it. Jump-ups usually happened in the town of Plymouth, which was the capital of the island. Mm -hmm. That's where the center of Montserratian life was back in the day. Um, nowadays, because there's, you know, everything is basically on this strip on the northeast side of the island, there's really not that opportunity to have people just spontaneously, uh, you know, uh, starting parties. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I get like, it. All right, let's talk about the lack of snobbery in Montserrat. That's a huge part of it. The, you know, Artists could just walk into a bar, sit down at a bar, and have a beer. Everybody is equal as far as Montserratians are concerned. So you don't have this separation between, uh, you know, classes and things like that. I, back in the day, there was a certain amount of that between, you know, the richer expatriates that would come in and buy mm -hmm. huge villas. But for those who lived on the island uh, all the time, uh, you know, that really wasn't a factor, as you might find in other places around the world. It's pretty much noted that Jerry Rafferty was a mess when he went to Montserrat to do his album. Okay, let's talk about the Jerry Rafferty church story. You know, artists would just walk around the island just to take in the the culture. You got this environment of jungle and, and, and Caribbean sounds and smells and and you're taking that in, and then you've got the culture on the other side, and there's a really strong uh, religious culture there. And Jerry's, you know, one one Sunday morning walking around, and he hears one of the local choirs singing, and, you know, he's in flip-flops and shorts, and he walks in, and everybody's dressed to the nines because it's it's Sunday church. And he's just sitting in the back, awed by how beautiful the sound is, and one of the gentlemen inside's like, come on in, come on in, because... Montserratians are so welcoming and so so you know kind and he's like no 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 I don't want to intrude and they're like no 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 come on in so he comes in and here he is just you know as far as he's concerned some guy intruding on this beautiful thing and the people are just bringing him in and you know uh, he he wished he could have had a uh, some sort of recording device so that he could have actually recorded it because huh. it was something he wanted to remember and one more Let's talk about Tappy, the great chef personality who was the chef at Air Montserrat and once secured weed for Nazareth in a very funny story in your book. Yeah, Malcolm Atkin, who was the uh, who was the uh, you know, <laughs> studio managers for Air, you know, he's in his, in his bedroom at the, at the villa and he's smelling the strong marijuana smell and like where is this coming from and he realizes it's coming out of the kitchen and it turns out that you know nazareth is is looking for some marijuana tappy's like i don't know where to get it so he goes and he you know borrows some quote unquote from some local rastas it's actual plants that he's dug out of the ground he's got to figure out a way to to dry it so it's usable and he's baking it in the in the studio's oven. <laughs> and the aroma's filling the air like, you know, remember Marcus in the Northeast used to get the smell of the Nabisco the cookies? It was like, but it was the weed. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Tappy is a larger-than-life character. Did you get to talk to him? I did. I did. He, uh, he lives in America, and uh, I flew up to see him just as the pandemic was starting. 
and uh, I had a nice dinner with him and, and we had a, a good several hour conversation about working and living there and got a lot of background to you know how he he came to work at the studio he was considered the best chef on the island um and he was uh poached away from the viewpoint uh hotel which was the top uh hotel mm -hmm. on the island at the time i got one other question that i need to ask and we didn't get too much into the fire of, of the neve desk after it was brought over and installed there and I'm, I'm sure that it had something to do with power conversion problem or something like that but does the montserrat neve desk still exist out there it does uh the neve desk is uh in use in um subterranean studios i believe it's in toronto uh Sweet. it went a and m bought it uh in 1986 it was installed in a and m studios in california for a number of years then went into storage and it's been passed, I think, twice between some smaller independent studios since then. But it is still in use today. Sweet. Do you want to tell the story of what happened and what made you decide to embark on this journey? I come to a point in my my career where, uh, you know, I I moved to moved from one city to another for my wife's career. I had looked for work for a while and I couldn't find a job in my field because I'd, I'd gotten to that point where you're like, you know, you work in a career for several decades, you get to a certain point and then I feel you. Yeah. People don't want to hire you anymore because mm -hmm. you've got too much experience, too much education, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, I was a musician back in the 90s. You know, I, I used to write for, for music zines and, uh, I got this idea of, you know, maybe I could just start writing some articles about about the music that impacted me in my teenage years and look at like, you know, I've always been a fan of finding out the context of, of music. So, you know, why did an artist write the song? How was it recorded? How did, you know, society impact, you know, what they were writing about and how it was received, et cetera, et cetera. So I started looking at some of my you know some of the music i loved and you know like uh you know the police and that kind of stuff and i mm. saw air Montserrat on a couple different recordings and i'm like I, i've heard of air london and you know i know some other major recording studios but i've never heard of air Montserrat. so i started looking at it and i'm like there's like a one paragraph wikipedia entry about it and i'm like okay well there's got to be more to the story i mean it operated for 10 years had all these great records and then got wiped out by a hurricane why hasn't anybody done anything about this? Why hasn't anybody really recorded the history of this thing? And I Where just, along the path did you find out about the documentary in progress? Uh, almost immediately. Uh, they had just started down the path. Um, they hadn't got funding yet to actually film it. So, you know, I had reached out to the producer of the movie and, um, you know, we talked about it and it was clear that uh, you know, theirs is very visual and they have a very limited amount of time to tell their story, you know, in a documentary type format. Mm -hmm. So I had unlimited time, <laughs> basically pages to to really get into the nitty gritty. Um, and, you know, I really think that the documentary and the book complement each other very well. But I think between the two, you really can get a really good sense of, of what it was like to, to be there, work there and record there. Yeah, you did a great job of filling in the holes that the documentary did not touch on. And I love the fact that you went so behind the scenes to get a feel for not only the island, but the people of the island as well and the people who built it. So you really did the behind the scenes people solid. This magic could not have happened without all of them too. And you made that very clear without saying it directly in the book, but you did a great job capturing that story and sharing a different viewpoint from the everyday person's uh, angle. And you answered a question for me in our episode. If you listen to it, Brian, we were talking about the uh, Elton John studio moment where somebody walks in and says, oh, I'm still standing and inspires him to call Bernie to write the song and all that. And in your book, you identify that person as Adrian Colley, an Elton assistant, because everybody else was down for the count that day. It's just an incredible story that you added. The, the missing part 
to my brain, my little brain of uh, <laughs> Kubapedia working in here. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, Chris Thomas told me that story, the, the producer of that record. Um, and I mean, it just I, I could never have imagined myself before this project sitting down with someone like Chris Thomas, who produced some of the Pretender's best records. Yes. You know, Elton, three of Elton John. Like, I'm sitting down having lunch with this guy. Like, it was an incredible journey from front to back. Did you take your wife to Montserrat with you, or did you go solo? Gotta know. Gotta know. He's checking in case we go. He's checking. <laughs> What's <laughs> I know you, Goldman. I know you so well. I went by myself because it was something I didn't think that she would want to be drug around an island mm. for a week. running. And, and I mean, literally, it was running from interview to interview to interview. But uh, I'll, I'll say this, that next year, it's our 30-year anniversary next year, 2023. And right. one of the destinations we are definitely going to is to Montserrat. And one of my main goals in going to Montserrat is to put a copy of my book in the local library. Because that's to me, that's the emotional, that is the emotional end of this project. Because I want the people there to be able to go and read the book. Uh, and you know, no, maybe you can get yeah, it exactly. to be a textbook in the schools, but create a whole generation of, uh, you know, technicians and recording producers and stuff. You never know, man, it could happen. Yeah. Well, I think I got to tell you, I cannot imagine the ride that it was getting it together, feeling it, getting there, experiencing all that, and then going home and going, oh, fuck, now what? Knowing that you had what you had to make this amazing book about a time and place. So cool. Hey, you know what, Marcus, I never heard of this before and I didn't see it in the documentary, but in your book, you talk about the piano box drum room. Sure. A lot of places have drum rooms, but it was kind of unusual to have a piano box, which kind of sheltered the sound from the piano while recording it. It was kind of neat. The description and everything, man. Yeah, Dave Harris, who was the studio manager uh, at the time, who was then made, uh, you know, executive manager or so of, of Air Montserrat during the build, he came up with that idea. You know, it wasn't that big of a room. It was compared to a lot of studios. It was it was fairly small. So getting that isolation for a an acoustic instrument such as a piano was really important. And it was a unique design that had never been done anywhere else. Another detail that I found really fascinating that you were able to put in the book was the fact that the glass was angled slightly downwards to help the acoustics be better in the room and just like little details about building the studio like that that you included were those details readily given up by the people you spoke with did you get to look at the original plans any of that oh yeah i met um david hod who was the architect on the island of Montserrat and he had the original uh, architectural documents which he shared with me and allowed me to to photograph I'm sitting there looking at the original from 1977 the original drawings that he did to design the studio um, unfortunately he died uh, five months after I interviewed him so I just I consider it an honor and and just a very lucky lucky that I got down to the island to yeah. to meet him before he passed um and you know people like dave harry's from air uh, malcolm atkin they really wanted to share what went into the studio um because it was so unique uh, i didn't really have to pry hard to get these stories from them because they were they were proud of of this effort to build this high-tech high-end recording studio on this tiny caribbean island it was a you know a, a herculean uh uh, task to be able to do something like that. Indeed. Indeed. Marcus, I think from our conversation with Brian, I think I have it figured out when, or if we go, we're going to go Bob Dylan style. We're going to get a big yacht and we're going to pull it right into the Harbor there. Remember when you, in your book where you're talking about Dylan mm -hmm. parked his yacht for three days? Well, we're actually going to come ashore, but that's what we do. <laughs> we pull the yacht in close, right? Everybody's like, oh, whose yacht is it? We act like, you know, it's somebody from Hollywood. We take the little boat around and go in and swim in, right? And then we make our way up. That's the way we're going to do it. Yeah. Okay. All right. You're adding to our <laughs> plot. My final question is, Brian, what did you learn about yourself during the whole process of creating this book? Well, I had never, never written anything more lengthy than my master's thesis and you know the perseverance 
needed to do something of this scale I'd never done before in my life. You know, it could have, I could have easily done it. Uh, well, I couldn't have easily, I couldn't have done the project that I did from sitting in my chair doing internet research. I thought that that was too much research and, and things are written nowadays without getting hands on. You know, I would have done more interviews in person if it hadn't been for COVID. It, it just was such a huge task to meet 50 plus people involved with the studio and interview them and then take 100 hours of recorded audio and go through it and try to make it into some sort of cohesive tell the story that's right. guys um, that's why i think you got a podcast there <laughs> <laughs> well but he may not he may not have a podcast in his immediate future but we'll we'll continue that conversation brian salerson our guest here on the imbalance history of rock and roll podcast you can get his book It'll give you all the information. We've been talking for a while, but there's so much more than what we've even been able to discuss here in your book. So it's on Amazon. It's Amazon Publishing, which is a, uh, an interesting angle to take, I think, for a lot of authors these days. People put their heart and soul into it like you did. Get it in print and to get it out there. Well, we want to help because... We love the story and we love your telling of it, in addition to all the other stuff that we've learned along the way. Um, so check it out on Amazon or on Apple Books and also check out his website, Salerson.com. That's Salerson with two L's.com. And uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and tell your story about Montserrat. Marcus, I, I feel like we actually did visit. So maybe we're inching closer to our visit to Montserrat to go see this amazing place where all this great music happened. Definitely go read the book, especially if you're a fan of music. And most likely you have a bunch of albums that were recorded at Air Montserrat in your record collection. So learn about the studio that created the magic that you get to listen to. And read, for Christ's sake. Yes, reading books is good. Well, Marcus, that was a lovely trip to Montserrat. And what a great time spent with Brian Salerson about his book. And anybody who wants to add to the conversation can do that easily by sending us an email anytime at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. And yes, we actually answer our emails, right? Yes, we do. Love hearing from you guys. Yeah, please share stories. If you've been to the island of Montserrat, we definitely want to hear your stories as well. And you can also check us out on social media, the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on all three platforms. Definitely follow our social media platforms. And email is always easier because nobody knows that I'm emailing you. That kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? It's always, it's always easy. <laughs> hey, look, we're having a great time doing this podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our sponsors, Boltfoot Socks and Crooked Eye Brewery. And after this episode with Brian, I think you agree that we are closer to charting our adventure to go to Montserrat, our great adventure. And on that note, Mr. Ray, I think we should consider chartering an imbalanced history of rock and roll cruise or plane flight to the island of what? Montserrat. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. Let's do it anyway. Call Pantheon. Call Pantheon. Get him on the horn right now. <laughs> so till the next time that we all plan to go to Montserrat in the middle of the Caribbean together or do an episode of this podcast about the music that we love so much. Signing off from the Dark Duck Media Studios, I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Island Music Man. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.